A day of departure concludes a week of historic upheaval in Egypt, and you can hear it right there. I'm John Hockenberry with Celeste Headley, and this is Wave of Change, explaining and experiencing the push for democracy in Egypt and the Arab world. On this latest edition of our podcast from The Takeaway, our partners, The New York Times and the BBC, we're going to look back at the week that was and still is boiling in a political turmoil, the outcome of which is far from clear. And to help us re-experience this week and advise us all how to look ahead for what might happen, we're joined by Magdi Abdelhadi, Middle East editor for our partner, the BBC, who's in Cairo. Uh, Magdi Abdelhadi, good morning. Good morning. So where were we a week ago? I mean, when we went into the weekend last week, was there any anticipation that this would scale up as quickly as it has? No, I think nobody predicted this would happen uh, as much as anyone had failed to predict that Tunisia will be the first Arab country to topple a leader the people regarded as a dictator, and that it would spread so quickly to Egypt and other countries in the region. What do you think was the dynamic that drove the situation from Monday to Tuesday, where there was that tumultuous demonstration that really set the stage for everything else that happened this week? I think when they began the protests and they took control of the street and they became more confident... And they broke the barrier of fear very much in the same way the Tunisians did. Once you've crossed that point, uh, there was no return. And when President Mubarak appeared on state television on Tuesday and announced that he would not run for office for a sixth term, uh, well, once you offer a concession, then you're on a slippery slope. And people are demanding more concessions. They want nothing less than him simply going and going now. And so when we listen to Mubarak's speech and, and, and his statement... I defended its soil, sovereignty and interest, and I will die on the soil of Egypt. Uh, you know, it sounds perhaps to us in the West like he's conceding, but to many on those streets in Cairo, it actually sounded more like he was digging in. Well, there is a crisis of confidence, of course, because he has ruled for 30 years. Uh, So people say we've heard many promises before that were broken, and what makes us believe that you're going to deliver what you promised? Uh, The institutions in place that are supposed to supervise this uh, transition, the parliaments, uh, are in the protesters' eyes illegitimate. They were elected into an election they say was rigged. So two things, confidence in the president himself, or lack of confidence in, in Mubarak himself, and lack of confidence in the institutions that are supposed to uh, oversee uh, a transition, a peaceful transition to democracy. We're speaking with Magdi Abdelhadi, who's the Middle East editor for our partner, the BBC. And really, it was that speech that was the pivot during the week where things really changed. Once you hear that speech and then get to Wednesday morning in Cairo, you begin to see a a change in mood and, and a new set of players who enter Tahrir Square. What happened, actually, Mubarak's speech was very successful in splitting public opinion, if you like. People saw it as a reasonable offer, a good compromise, and uh, he's going to be around for only a few more months, and then we'll have a new era. But as I said, for the reasons I gave before, uh, the people in the the, the politically active uh, core of the demonstration uh, or, or the protest movement don't trust the president and felt that this is just another ploy to either him personally to hold on to power or to the regime to remain intact in a new reincarnation. 
Then, of course, uh, came the violent clashes, or rather, rather than clashes between pro-Mubarak and, and democracy campaigners. What happened, actually, uh, was an attack on the pro-democracy campaigners in Tahrir Square. People on horsebacks and on camels uh, striking and charging right through the, the, the protesters in Tahrir Square. And that attack, uh, largely attributed to the, the ruling party, President Mubarak's ruling party, the NDP, managed to sway public opinion back against him. And the people who were persuaded by the speech started to say, no, we want him to go and go now. And not only the people in Egypt were persuaded to, to put more pressure on Mubarak, but the international community as well. We had uh, European governments weighing in, and it appeared that the Obama administration after some significant lack of clarity, began to step up its own rhetoric. How would you assess the international pressure? Enormous, of course, and has played a crucial role because uh, Mubarak has always depended to a great extent on, on the perceived legitimacy of his power and his regime by the support he gets from uh, the EU and, the, uh, and Washington. And once that is taken away... Uh, he is considerably weakened. For the people in the street have always regarded Mubarak as, as a dictator propped up by the West. That's how they see it. And when the West pulls the rug from under him, they send blood and they say, all right, let's go for him now. Which gets us to the day of departure, which is the Friday demonstration. And I guess if you do a day of departure, uh, how do you get beyond that? I mean, if, if day of departure is, is this demonstration... Uh, where do we go from here? I think the, the, the interesting question now is what happens when Mubarak is gone, because Mubarak will be going. What happens after Mubarak is gone will be the most interesting chapter in this, because the, 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 the protesters insist on a radical reform of the regime. They want new elections. They do not recognize the legitimacy of the current parliament, as I mentioned earlier, because they say the elections were rigged. So they want new elections, they want to draw up a new constitution, and that is precisely the most controversial topic, the role of religion, or the role of Islam, to be exact, in, in, in society. So, but I'm taking you really, I'm jumping the gun, but at the moment, the most immediate problem, of course, is to remove Mubarak, and then how best to ensure that he is not replaced by another military man. And then after that, of course, to agree on the shape of the constitution and what future democracy, if ever happens, uh, Egypt will become. Well, enumerating the issues in the next chapter or perhaps laying out a number of chapter headings there for Egypt as we go forward. That's Middle East editor for our partner, the BBC, Magdi Abdulhadi in Cairo. Thanks so much. You're welcome. And as the week ends, we have reports that the Obama administration is beginning talks to try and move Egypt into that next chapter. President had seemingly strong words on the same night President Mubarak announced he was leaving office in September. An orderly transition must be meaningful, it must be peaceful, and it must begin now. Obama's now quickly became the day before yesterday. And as we head into the weekend, does Washington really have the ability to help Egypt find an acceptable tomorrow? And there are plenty of forces in Egypt that would love to prevent tomorrow from coming at all. Even Vice President Omar Suleiman, with his close ties to the White House and especially the Pentagon, who may be asked to form an interim government, Suleiman and other Egyptian officials have cards to play in dealing with the U.S. For instance, 
threatening possibly to disclose some of the nastier details of the U.S.-Egyptian intelligence relationship over the years. It's a genuine Pandora's box, says former State Department and Pentagon official and former head of the Council on Foreign Relations, Leslie Gelb. We do lots of rather hard-nosed things with the Egyptian army and with the Egyptian intelligence force. And were those to be made public, a lot of people would uh, cry foul. Now, you know, remember this. Almost everything we do on counterterrorism in the Middle East is housed in Egypt. It's a critical home for us there. Well, let's turn away from the intelligence domain here. Is it possible that the other card that Mubarak and his government have to play is, look, we've spent so much time working with you on this peace treaty with Israel Uh, you stick with us, allow us to do what we need to do here in our country, or you're going to see Hamas all over Ashdod and uh, southern Israel. Well, that's surely saying just that. And uh, it has real credibility because a lot of the intellectuals in Egypt who are part of this uprising is very anti-Israel. You know, they feel that Israel is the problem in the region, not the solution. And their loyalties are almost entirely with the Palestinian people. So one way or another, even if the Muslim Brotherhood doesn't gain power, there's going to be much more of an anti-Israeli attitude toward the future Egyptian government. So then you are describing a situation, Leslie Gelb, where the U.S. government appears to have very little in the way of levers to pull and influence uh, to, to force events here. It seems to me that... The powerful cards are in the hands of the Egyptians at this point. There's no question. Uh, People have got to come to a much more realistic sense of what we can and can't do. We have influence on the margins. We have less influence today than we did a week ago because we kept on contradicting ourselves. And so we alienated first the protesters, then the government, then the government, then the protesters. You lose your credibility, and yeah, you have less influence. Finally, uh, just to rely on your experiences being in the State Department and the Pentagon and uh, knowing the workings of the White House, when those pictures of the million people in the streets of Cairo were broadcast, which government agency, which office over there in the White House or the Pentagon or State Department got the worst gut feeling about what was going on? The worst gut feeling? I would say, you know, it's probably the intelligence people who uh, who got nervous first, most nervous first. Mm. Because, as I said, we have a lot of operations that are based out of there and a lot of things we do with the Egyptian intelligence. And that's at risk in the war against terrorists in the Middle East and, uh, and uh, eastward. That's an important thing. Helping us to understand what we are seeing, former Pentagon and State Department official Leslie Gelb. He's also a former head of the Council on Foreign Relations. Now our Face in the Crowd segment. Among the faces in the crowds this week in Cairo were undoubtedly some Coptic Christians, a religious minority in Egypt, but still 10% of the population. And part of the duty of any government, particularly a democracy, is to protect the rights of minorities. Takeaway co-host Celeste Headley spoke with Father Armea Tufiles, a priest with the St. George Coptic Orthodox Church of Brooklyn, New York. Coptic Christians, he says, don't like the Mubarak regime much, but they're not terribly confident in an Egypt as a democracy. We've been calling for a, a change even from New Year's Eve. It was clear from the Coptic youth. Yet uh, we have to make sure the change is done properly. 
Well, I, I assume that one of the big fears is that the Muslim Brotherhood will ab- attain some kind of position of power in any new government. Is that what's concerning you and other Coptic Christians? Exactly. The Muslim Brotherhood, it's one of the strongest groups. If transition is not done in a good, timely fashion, most probably this was going to end up that radicals will be in control. Although, Father Tufiles, I mean, the chances could be that with the free elections coming up and international monitors, you could end up in a better situation for the Coptic Christians of Egypt. Of course, if a, a good election in a timely fashion, because unfortunately, if the change happen abruptly, then the consequences will be worse for Egypt, number one, as a country, the Middle East, and the whole world. Father Armea Tufila is a priest with the St. George Coptic Orthodox Church of Brooklyn, speaking with Takeaway co-host Celeste Headley about the religious minorities of Egypt, some of the faces in those crowds, particularly the Coptic Christians, and their concerns about what might happen under an Egyptian democracy. All week long, as we've watched events unfold across Egypt, we've found people all over the world with a stake in the outcome of this confrontation between regimes in the Middle East and their people's aspirations for freedom. Our takeaway today comes from Naima Noor. She's the director of the Tunisian Cultural and Information Center in New York. Nancy, by the way, who wishes she was back in Cairo right now. I think I would be chanting with the protesters. I think I'd be singing. I think I'd be uh, relearning the Egyptian national anthem. Relearning the Egyptian national anthem. That's interesting. You know, I've been rereading the Egyptian constitution Mm. and seeing how so much of the language is this uh, homage to human rights and universal freedoms. Um, How can something that is such a bitter joke for 30 years be turned into something that is a legitimate document for the creation of democracy? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And listening to Omar Suleiman yesterday on Egyptian state television talking about the revision to particular articles in the Constitution uh, really made me think that it might be better to begin with a clean slate and rewrite a Constitution. Naima Noor is the director of the Tunisian Cultural and Information Center right here in New York, looking beyond this day of departure to see where the momentum of these historic protests might take Egypt toward real political change. We'll be following all these events on the next Takeaway, along with the New York Times, the BBC, PRI, and our other partners. And join us right here for the next edition of Wave of Change, explaining and experiencing the push for democracy in Egypt and the Arab world. With Celeste Headley, I'm John Hockenberry. Thanks for joining us. And remember, we're always on at thetakeaway.org.